It's not all chaos and grief. There's a moral to the story. Are you just watching episode 115, WandaVision, part 2? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And we are returning for a hopefully more biblically based... <laughs> <laughs> A little bit more scripture. A little bit more scripture, yeah. When I was editing the last episode, I'm like, we don't have enough scripture in this. I think we had one. Yeah. We caught off talking about politics and kind of lost sight of what we were actually doing with our <laughs> podcast. But we will remedy that with this episode, I promise. But before we dive into the moral of the story, which is the whole point of this episode, I do want to do just a couple little housekeeping things. The first point is, if you haven't watched it, there is a documentary on Disney Plus that gives you kind of the background and the behind the scenes of filming WandaVision, which was really interesting. And I know that they had said at the beginning of the original episodes that they were filmed in front of a live audience. And for some reason, I just didn't even pay attention to that. I just figured it was part of the the feeling of the sitcom yeah. genre that they were trying to part of the framing the framing yeah and yeah. come to find out they actually did film those in front of a live audience which i thought was really cool so that wasn't like canned laughter it was people really reacting just like they used to to the old sitcoms that were filmed in front of a live audience i thought that was kind of cool there are still sitcoms out there that that film in front of live audiences well at least you know, pre-COVID. Yeah. Post-COVID, it's in front of a live staff. <laughs> Last Man Standing is one yeah. that films in front of a live audience. And uh, one of the Netflix ones that I watched with Gabriel Iglesias, Mr. Iglesias, I think was the name of it, the, the comedy, the 20-minute mm -hmm. episode comedy, that was filmed in front of a live audience. And it really does make a difference. Yeah. The canned laughter is just, it just feels... Canned. <laughs> Off in an uncanny valley type of way. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it was a, a level of realism that was that I didn't notice, but it worked. It, it was it, it probably would have been more noticeable if it hadn't been real. Yeah. And that was kind of cool because they were of course filming in black and white for the first two episodes, and but yet the live audience got to see it all in color. So they did use like really bright the bright colors of that era so mm -hmm. that it would look good in black and white. Yeah, it was it was really cool. The other thing that I have started watching, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I have watched the first three episodes. and As have I. The point that we made in the previous episode about WandaVision being a good natural sequel to Endgame, mm -hmm. I think it applies just as well to Falcon and the Winter Soldier because they are actually dealing with some of the chaos and the displacement of the mm -hmm. the peoples that that returned and turning you know kind of showing them as a disenfranchised ref group of refugees scattered throughout the world and which makes a lot more sense so I I think they kind of equally now <laughs> fit in that Yeah it, it's sort of like they're doing two sides of the same coin because, mm -hmm. you know, Falcon and Winter Soldier, the, it's a essentially a, a terrorist group mm -hmm. that wants to return the world to what it was like during the blip. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's you remember that line from Hayward where he says to Monica, uh, you don't know what it was like. Mm-hmm. You guys had it easy type thing. Yeah. Hayward is was sort of like the seed planted that grew into the villain group that we've seen so far in the first three episodes of uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. Yeah. And it's going to be a while before I get to complete that because I actually severed my Disney Plus account this week. So oh, no. I'm taking a hiatus. I'll probably end up back in there eventually. Yeah, we're actually looking at cutting the cord when we relocate our household sometime in the next month. Yeah. That comes. I mean, after a while, the finances of it become an issue. Then one last thing, we did ask for feedback from our listeners before we recorded, and we didn't get it a lot, but we did get some feedback regarding our previous episode. We had some feedback from uh, a listener named Pat. So she had some feedback about Gina Carano and how we had been tying that into the politics of Marvel. She argued essentially that... Her termination was not an issue of politics, but it was a a wise choice to basically sever a relationship from a toxic individual and avoid scandal. Yeah, and and basically, you know, cover cover their butts to avoid any potential scandal. And she makes some good points. You know, we suffer from armchair quarterback <laughs> situations here. Yeah, where. Neither Pat nor us know really the whole story, and none of us will. Mm-hmm. Even Gina and Disney won't know the whole story. Disney will know why, what they perceived and why they did it, and Gina will know what she posted and why she did it. Right. And she actually talked to one of the folks you listen to frequently, yes. uh, Ben Shapiro, about it. Uh, still a very good discussion, and uh, I think it's important to remember that our perspective can change <laughs> easily based on you know where we're coming from. And uh, Pat had some really good comments. I, I think if you look at my Facebook feed, it's, I do pretty much everything publicly. Uh, <laughs> you can you can get into the the conversation there. Yeah. We we can always start up the conversation in in the group too cuz right. we we love the feedback. We love the conversation. Please, please, please keep it coming. <laughs> yeah. And I just wanted to make a, a few comments regarding what she said because I think she took one aspect of what we said Disney was being political about and used it to say that Disney isn't political. You know, just the firing of Gina was not yeah. the only thing that Disney does that's political. And if you go back through all of the Disney properties that we've reviewed probably in the last two to three years, you'll hear us making comments in our reviews of, you know, this was political statements that they were making in their media properties that have come out recently. And so mm-hmm. it's it's not so much the firing of Gina, that's kind of more of a behind the scenes thing that is political. And I do I do believe it is political because there are a lot of outspoken people in Hollywood yeah. and in Disney that, that will tweet and about all sorts of political things and get themselves embroiled in all kinds of political scandals, and they don't get – It's cancel culture. Right. And I think that it's not so much Disney, it's Disney giving in to the woke mob. So the woke mob decides who gets canceled and who doesn't. 
And it is definitely falling on one side of politics more than it does on the other. Yeah, yeah. And I brought that up. And and one of the things that she brought up was, and this was something I hadn't really been paying attention to in the news, was that that they had fired Johnny Depp. And I had not been paying attention uh, to Johnny Depp and, and the Pirates of the Caribbean and all of that stuff. I did a little research on that because she says, well, you know, he's liberal. They wouldn't have fired him mm-hmm. if they were political. And if I recall correctly, these were accusations that were eventually proven to be false. Well, courts were involved. So right. it, when when you have a scandal- Or I should where, say he was cleared of. <laughs> yeah, actually, from what I can see, the courts actually ruled against him. So Oh, they did? Okay. Yes, yes. So there were courts involved. It was an international scandal. I don't think that uh, Disney could possibly keep him on when domestic abuse is actually a criminal charge, whether or not he gets completely, you know, charged with it from the point of going to jail, which that didn't happen. But there was a lawsuit that he lost in regards to that. The issue is, is that there were courts involved. And Mm -hmm. we're not talking about woke mob. We're not talking about adverse reactions to a, a tweet. We're talking about courts. So I don't think they had a choice but to fire him in that situation. And then the other example that she brought up was Tim Allen, who is Mm -hmm. one of the lead actors in Toy Story, along with other things. And he is a pretty, I wouldn't say outspoken conservative, I'd say he's a prominent conservative. And the difference being that he is savvy enough not to go tweeting political things. (laughs) and. I actually went and checked his Twitter feed because I was curious to see what, you know, what his history was over the last few months, you know, especially like going up back to the election, because a lot of conservatives came out that, you know, heavily supporting Trump and, and all of that after the election. And he was very low key about it. What few comments he tweeted were, were very generic, not like somebody could read and, and read into what he was saying. Just extremely generic, extremely carefully mm-hmm. worded. And then he went on Jimmy Fallon Live and they joked about COVID and masks and, and, but they stayed away from politics. And I think Tim Allen has been in the business long enough. I mean, a long time <laughs> that he probably is pretty savvy about what he can get away with. Plus he has a massive following. And I think the big difference between Tim Allen and Gina Carano is that she was new to acting. She came out Mm -hmm. of fighting some kind of MMA Uh, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Was she MMA or was she WWE? I don't don't know. I can't can't keep track of all of those different fighting. she, She was like a probationary employee. Yeah. She was brand new to acting, brand new to Hollywood. She's young. And this election back in November was the very first time she ever voted. So she's new to politics. And she made some comments on tw- on Twitter more out of just having her eyes open to what was going on in the world politically and mm-hmm. completely innocent of anything, any scandal that she was causing. She wasn't trying to stir waters or anything. She was more just reacting to things naturally based on on views that she never thought to have politically. And and she got completely raked over the coals for it because she didn't have the experience, number one, to guard her tongue. And to me, I think that this speaks to a political environment where people can't make mistakes. And we know this 
because we've seen it happen over and over again, especially like in the last two to four years, where if you make a mistake and publicly, there's no apologizing for it, especially if you're on one side of the political aisle. I think that is political. And I, and I think it is shutting down a political viewpoint. It's not, it's not allowing certain people to speak freely. I mean, the fact that Tim Allen has to guard what he tweets. Yeah. That he has to stay away from politics, you know, in order to maintain his following and his position. There are a lot of people in Hollywood who do that. Ben Shapiro talks about them all the time because he came out of Hollywood. His parents are involved in Hollywood. He, his very first book was about the liberal bias of Hollywood. He's been around it all the time, and he has lots of friends in Hollywood who will, will not admit publicly that they even know him, let alone ha- say happy birthday to him, because mm-hmm. of this understanding that you cannot be conservative and, and, and have a career in, in Hollywood. So, yes, it is political. And I, I'm, I'm sad to say that as Christians, we end up supporting yeah. these these organizations that are so heavily leaning one side politically, and it is kind of sad. I agree mostly with you. Mm-hmm. It's, I just think it's not 100% political. I think there are bean counters behind the scenes who are calculating the impact <laughs> <laughs> of keeping her on at, versus letting her go. And... I think her position, her... Uh, she didn't have the following to, to uh, save her, basically. And exactly. Wo- yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's sort of what it comes down to. She, she, was, she, she was removed for her tweets, you know, for her statements. But if it had been Tim Allen who had made the exact same statements, they would not have removed him. He'd have survived it. She could not. Right. And, and that goes back to my point is that people can't afford to make mistakes because there's yeah. no forgiveness. There's no, yeah, much there's less no apology. Yeah. N- there's no forgiveness. There's no apologizing. There's no going back and there's no second chances. Once you have made that mistake, you know, you're, you're done. Mm-hmm. It's not just Hollywood. There's several industries where that's really becoming an issue and it's, it's sad. It really is. But we are here to discuss the moral of the story. I think we've said that several times. <laughs> you can but, never have too many morals. Well, yes, yeah, yeah. Well, depends on how you where you get your morals from, I guess. <laughs> uh, let me rephrase that. You can never have too many morals of the story. <laughs> so the biggest one that struck us. Going into WandaVision and coming out of WandaVision, you know, once you get the uh, understanding of what all's going on and who the villains are, which we discussed a little bit in our previous episode about Agatha and Hayward and their lust for power. Mm -hmm. That lust is best described as coveting. And we've actually dealt with coveting a lot in previous episodes of other content because it comes up a ton not so much from the standpoint of the moral of the story is thou shalt not covet, but the world is coveting constantly. So it's like that whole nature of trust your heart and, you know, follow your dreams and, you know, all of the things that the stories of Hollywood tell us constantly are based in 
a need to want things and get what you want kind of idea. Mm -hmm. Greed and envy. Greed and envy, yes. Wanting what other people have. And, and, you know, that whole concept of wanting what other people have is really, to be honest, the root cause of what's destroying our country today. Because everybody wants what somebody else has, whether it's riches, fame, perceived superiorities, jobs, homes, neighborhoods. But the what we need is people wanting to give to <laughs> people who don't have. Yeah. It's just a question of how and what. But that's enough to fill up its own episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a, a couple of the main characters here that we've identified as having specific covetousness for things. Uh, if that even makes sense. We identified characters who are the worst at coveting in in this storyline. Let's put it that way. Coveting the worst? Coveting. <laughs> the most egregious coveters. So the first one turns out to be Agatha all along. <laughs> so you don't find out until like episode six, I think? I think it's the end of seven. Is it the end of seven? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, the end. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That the next door neighbor who has been in more scenes all along than any of the other secondary characters is actually the witch, Agatha, who's been around a very, very long time. And she apparently saw the the hex that Wanda put up, this this hex that made the reality in which she envisioned and the, the kids are living. And she wants that power because the Agatha of WandaVision is a power siphon. Mm -hmm. She grows her own abilities by siphoning the powers off others. And she's identified Wanda as a foretold force of nature, yeah, called the Scarlet Witch, which is in this series the the first time that she's ever – Called by her comic book name, yeah. Yeah. In fact, they actually had had a statement, I think it was maybe in episode four, where somebody asked if she had a name that she went by, and they said, nope, just Wanda. (laughs) Yeah, and and the Halloween episode, somebody says something like, what are you, just a a red witch? And she (laughs) goes, no, I'm a Sokovian fortune teller. (laughs) Like a tease. Yeah. So Agatha inserts herself into this reality so that she can study Wanda and find a way to take Wanda's power for herself. And she has a very good chance of doing so because she has centuries of experience. And knowledge. She actually knows what's going on, which Wanda doesn't. And I think that that's – you know, a, a key thing. And it, that was one of the really cool things I said in the previous episode that you can go back and watch the show over and over again, is that mm-hmm. when you go back and watch it a second or third time, and you pay attention to where Agnes pops in, it's always a surprise to Wanda. She's always caught off guard by it, or at least at the beginning until, you know, her yeah. popping in at crucial moments always, you know, gets to be old hat and you kind of start expecting her to come in. But that very first time that she knocks on the door and comes in, it's a total surprise to Wanda, which Wanda is controlling everything. So nothing should be able to surprise her. She's got her little fingers in everybody's minds. And yet 
somehow Agnes keeps popping in and doing things that are unexpected because one is yeah. not in control of her. So this power, you know, to draw the power from Wanda really is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This really is. She's a classic supervillain. I have this ability to take power from other people. I can use the power that I take for my own. Therefore, I will do so. Mm -hmm. I will steal from other people to enrich myself. And that's really the root of, uh, of being covetous. I want something somebody else has. And were it not for common grace, you know, if mankind were ruled solely by the sin, you know, the, the sin of the fall and not have the influence of, of God's common grace, the only thing that would prevent people from from fulfilling their covetous nature was whether or not they had the ability to overcome the person that owns what they covet. And the lack of anybody to stop them. Yeah. Yeah. So I might covet the Hulk's strength, but it ain't no way I'm getting it. <laughs> and you might covet your neighbor's house, but there are laws that prevent you from just taking it. So, Yeah, except those laws are a reflection. There's, they're an actual manifestation of God's common grace on the world. They are a way that we are trying to impose order. Civilization itself is trying to impose the order that is of God. Right. Over top of the, the chaos that is of Satan. We have the example of the lawgiver, and so we give laws. Exactly. Even if you won't acknowledge it. Right. You know, by taking off the Ten Commandments from the wall behind the, the judge. <laughs> right. So then we have another character whom we also discussed in the previous episode, and that is Director Hayward. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because, you know, the, the whole concept of getting a, a working vision, you know, like bringing vision back to life and bringing him under the control, you know, the uh, sentient intelligence that is under control mm -hmm. of the political organization that can then program him to do whatever they want. Because the original vision was his own person. He had a personality. He was sentient. He had a, a concept of right and wrong, and he followed what was right. But Director Hayward wants – I don't know whether he wanted the notoriety or as much as the power that having a, a functioning vision that answers to him yeah, that, that yeah. will obey his programming would give him, whether that be secular power or actual – I don't know whether he was trying to – I mean, we, we discussed this briefly in the previous episode, what his intention was to do with that, but definitely could set himself up to be quite the villain if he had mm -hmm. something of Vision's power answering to his beck and call. Well, you know, we actually – we're seeing a little bit of that same motivation in the creation of the new Captain America. Yeah. Because Captain America – a good portion of his power – yes, he's a super soldier. He is super strong, super fast. He is the perfect physical specimen, yada, yada, yada. But a good portion of his power was actually in the symbolism of his identity. Mm -hmm. And that came from Steve Rogers himself. Yeah, because if you go back to the original movie that introduced his character, you know, his origin movie – 
Mm-hmm. You know, they were just trying to make him a sideshow, really, you know, to drum up the, you know, money for the war effort. And yeah. it wasn't until he decided that he was going to actually be a super soldier and took it upon <laughs> himself to, you know, to take on missions that he went beyond that. Yeah. And and in Falcon, you know, they create a new Captain America dressed like him with subtle differences. Yes. Carrying his shield to try and take that power for themselves, and they use that power towards their own end. And that's exactly what, at least part of, what Mm -hmm. Hayward wants to do with Vision. Yeah. Um, He wants a superhero under his control. And it kind of goes back even further, because in in the Captain America Civil War, where the the governments were trying to put us a you know, the, the Sokovia Accords, where they were trying to dictate what the superheroes yep. could do. It was to give them political power over and to to assume that power to themselves as a political agency. And instead of giving the superheroes the free will to act upon things as they morally thought was necessary. Yeah. So there's definitely a slant that's going on in Marvel where they're showing, you know, these political organizations that are just trying to steal and this power that has up hitherto been in the morality and ethicalness of the individual superhero. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's interesting because they have been showing both sides. I mean, mm-hmm. they show a clear need right. with the Sokovia Accords. They, they set it up nicely to show that there are superheroes out there who act recklessly. But at the same time, you know, Steve Rogers shows a very clear argument against that yeah. because governments are run by people and people in government tend to crave power. And people who crave power tend to be lacking in moral fortitude. And there adds the additional level of turning people into slaves, basically, of the government. Because once you take away the free will of a superhero or any hero, I mean, if we put this in the common terms of the everyday man, if you Mm -hmm. tell, you know, the average Joe that he cannot help when he sees somebody in distress and uh, without first asking for permission, you know, where do we have the free will to act to help people? Because the government tells us we can't. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it can, it, there's, there's a view there that is, you know, the whole coveting of power thing. It, it's the whole idea of power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Yeah. So the, the higher you get in a power structure because of the way the human failing of sin, that, that just turns into this insatiable craving for more, more power, mm-hmm. more, recognition, more money. It never goes away. It just becomes more, a need for more. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that interests me about Hayward's claim to Vision's body was they they don't really talk about how he lay claim to it. We know that Vision was created by Bruce Banner and, and Tony Stark. Mm-hmm. So what we don't know is what their relationship was with S.H.I.E.L.D. at the time that they created him. Mm-hmm. You know, did they use shield assets or whatever? But imagine, if you will, that your grandma dies and the government discovers that they can take her remains and reanimate them 
to serve some specific purpose that only her remains can fulfill. That's sort of what it was like for the Hayward claim to Vision's body, because even though Vision was an artificial life form. He was sentient. He was sentient. He was still a person. Right. And it sounded like, based on what Wanda said at some point, I think it was Wanda that said it, that he had left like a, a will that that he had specific ideas. Yeah. I mean, he did not like dedicate his his body to science or anything. It was he had specific Mm -hmm. ideas of what he wanted done if he should die, and that those were not honored. Basically, yeah. Hayward's covetous nature seemed to take precedence over the rights of a sentient being, and and I think that was probably what made him most egregious in my mind. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what this new vision and, you know, what happens to him. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I'm hoping that it is a storyline that they at least touch on in the Strange movie. Yeah. So. He's been given all of Vision's memories, and so he's basically Vision again. and A monochrome Vision. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe maybe BLM will require that he be painted black. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and you know, there is an irony there, since the first two episodes were in black and white. Yeah. And he is all white now, as if he were in the first two episodes. <laughs> anyway, the third the third person who covets is actually the hero. Right. And this, I thought, I thought that this was the foundation of the entire series, and I thought it was really well done. You learn early on in the series that Wanda has created this reality. Mm-hmm. About halfway and, through. Oh, yeah, I guess it is about that. But at least when you first start to suspect it and maybe a little after they confirm it, I had the impression anyway that she had had a mental break and she did not know what she was doing, that it was – it's like the insanity defense. And I really honestly – The insanity defense only works if if you do not have a conscious understanding of what is right and what is wrong at the time that you commit the crime. Yeah. And I think that that upholds because she, as she awakens to the issue, I I think she starts to fight it because initially she doesn't know that she's doing it. And I think that as it progresses, things start to wake her to the reality that she is doing it. And she fights it until the end. And that is, and, and then she tries to let go of it and discover that she'll wipe out this beautiful family that she's created, which, you know, to yeah. be honest, gives her the same, she's got to make the same choice that Tony, <laughs> Tony Stark, Stark made. Yeah. Yep. And that Tony Stark made the choice to keep his family and she ends up having to make the choice to lose her family. So she actually, makes the opposite she's faced with the same choice and she goes the other direction for the sake of the the people and that's a that's very interesting i just now thought of that (laughs) yeah it really was a very subtle redemption arc yeah and subtle is not even the right word it was a very well woven redemption arc Mm -hmm. to the point where you know it it wasn't a slap in the face like bucky's redemption arc (laughs) as a winter soldier right which is still ongoing yeah (laughs) But it felt natural in WandaVision. 
So it, I really appreciated how how yeah. they had done that. Yeah, well, there's no malice in what she does. I mean, the yeah. the whole concept of her holding an entire town hostage to her grief. There was no yeah. malice in any of that. But as you say, she was coveting th- something. Because yeah. as as we go back through her story, which is episode eight, I believe, where Agatha takes her back you know, how did you get here? How did you arrive to this? Mm-hmm. And takes and forces her to relive parts of her life that were integral to bringing her to that position where she took this town hostage. Yeah. You find out that through her whole life, she escaped through TV. And mm-hmm. I mean, she had a horrible childhood. She had a traumatic childhood. And the best thing that she can remember from her childhood was watching those TV sitcoms. And her whole life, the only times when she was at peace, when she had any uh, a stability, was when she was just sitting still watching sitcoms, just allowing yeah. that to, to take her into a different world where she didn't have to worry about her parents or her brother or, you know, the cause that she was part of or any of that stuff. She could just let go, release, and and do what we caution our listeners not to do, which is just watch. You know, just shut your mm-hmm. brain off and just watch. And that's what she was doing. And that and that and she imbibed that to a certain level where she just coveted the perfect simple life that you see portrayed on TV. And you know what? I think a lot of Western culture is based on that covetousness. Oh yeah. I mean, we read yeah. about the perfect romances in in romance novels about the, you know, everything comes out happy in the end when you watch, you know, dramas on TV and we covet the, you know, the the fun and action of the action movies, you know, those the action you don't have in your own life so you get to, you know, mm-hmm. to live it through someone else vicariously. That is all a form of covetousness. It's just that none of us have the power to then turn that coveting into something symbolizing reality. Yeah. And, you know, it comes down to lust. Right. All sin is tied together. Right. You know, they, they talk about the seven deadly sins from Catholic teachings, but lust is just being covetous of, of something else, mm-hmm. and it's not always sexual. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called The Inner Ring, and in it he talks about how it, it is a lust for something that makes it evil, that the thing itself is not necessarily evil in and of itself. You know, money, just being rich does not mean that you're an evil person. Right. Just being powerful. It's the links that you go to get the money or what you do with the money that yeah it make you evil, right? And this covetous lust will tempt you. And it's it's how you respond to that temptation that makes the difference. Inner Ring is sort of a heavy read. It's like six pages. But if you ever feel, you know, particularly adventurous, I, I recommend it. Of course, you can always go back to scripture on all of this stuff, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There's that thing called the Bible. The That's Bible. Right. Yeah. And, of course, the one where we were just talking about money. This is, I think, one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. First uh, Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
And the reason why I say it's the most misquoted is that most people leave the love of out and just say that money is Mm -hmm. the root of all evil. It's not money. Money is just a tool. It's how you use it. And when you pursue it to the point where you crave it, like it says, by craving it, you have wandered away from the the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So, yeah. If you place it on a pedestal, if you make it an idol. Right. uh, To the exclusion of all other things. And you don't use it like the tool that it is for for good. I think that there are people in the world who God blesses with wealth, and they do good things with that money. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of, like, um, I, I could think of, like, the Green family. Uh, they're a, a very prominent Christian family who have a lot of money. They do a lot of charity with that money. And there are other you know, big families like that, that, that have wealth and they came by honestly honestly and they use it for good and God blesses them for that. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the people who he doesn't give money to, especially from the standpoint of, you know, wanting it, but not getting it, you know, it's like, if I just had a million dollars, I'd give a third of it to this ministry or that ministry or whatever. Yeah. God doesn't give it to you because he knows that you can't handle the temptation. Yeah. And God does not purposely draw us away from him. And he won't give us the trials that he knows that we'll stumble in. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that money and wealth are one of those things that, you know, he guards us from. And, you know, we convince ourselves that we can handle it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I have no doubt that if I won the lottery. Which you don't play, you know, right? If I won that $3 billion, <laughs> no. <laughs> if I won that $3 billion lottery, I would come out the other end completely uncorrupted. Uh, I think the Bible may have something to say about that. Yeah. I think I may have deceived myself. Which brings up the other scripture. Yeah. <laughs> The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the heart. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. That's Jeremiah 17, 9. So we can deceive ourselves, but God knows our heart better than we do. (laughs) That scripture is probably the third or fourth most used verse in our podcast. (laughs) Yeah, because Hollywood and... You know, the derivatives of Hollywood keep going back to that same tried and true plot that's the basis of pretty much everything. Trust your heart. It'll never lead you astray. (laughs) Follow your heart. So listener David Lefton had left a comment in the group for which we are very grateful. I really quickly want to read it because I think it applies well to this covetousness discussion. (laughs) Say that last five times. so hard. (laughs) He says, to me, the spirit of witchcraft is wanting supernatural power without reporting to supernatural authority, where you can just do what you want or what you think is right. But Holy Spirit power is where you have supernatural power, but what you do with it is limited to what the higher power deems is what is right and what is truly needed or helpful for people in the long term. He goes on to say superheroes and witches and wizards and media like Gandalf used to be more allegorical for Holy Spirit power. And that's certainly the case with Tolkien. And coming back to that favorite 
Spider-Man line. <laughs> With great power comes great responsibility. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And he asks a question, do you see Wanda as leaning more towards allegory for biblical witchcraft or biblical Holy Spirit power? And that that's a really good question. One that I don't have a solid answer for because the character in the MCU specifically, mm-hmm. the character of Wanda as the Scarlet Witch is just coming into her power. We're just coming to understand how big it is anyway. I yeah. think she's yeah, exactly. had it. She's had it. She just doesn't know what she can do with it. So Yeah. In Infinity War, there's a scene where she's talking to Vision and she says, I don't know what this power I have is. So she's been able to do stuff, but she doesn't know anything about it. So I don't think we have enough information yet to address whether or not Wanda Maximoff is the spirit of witchcraft or the Holy Spirit power in his example. Right. You know, if she's answering to a higher higher power or she's seeking power for her own. Agatha is definitely the first. Right. And I don't know that, I mean, because Agatha pinpoints or actually identifies Wanda's power as the power of chaos. So if we were to go by the actual yeah. names of things, if her power is the power of chaos, chaos is the opposite of order, which would put her yeah. at a diversity to biblical Holy Spirit power because the supernatural power of God always brings order. He is a creator, so he creates order. I do know from the comic books that that chaos is a very specific power source, but I, I got the impression that it's a natural source like magnetism, mm. not a moral source. Okay. So I only say that to say that I don't think the MCU or Marvel in general applies any moral balance to the idea of chaos. Mm-hmm. And frankly, how she ends up using this power is what will define determine yeah. if she's a hero, an anti-hero, or a villain. And in this particular series, she's all three. <laughs> yeah, she really is. Yeah, yeah. you're right. So whenever with the topic of witchcraft and scripture comes up, being a, a child of the 80s who <laughs> – was a devotee of Dungeons and Dragons. And I still enjoy incredible fantasy stories because I have come to understand that they serve a purpose just like any tool. Any genre. Yeah. Yeah. So David's comment took me back to in Acts chapter eight, where we have the story of Simon, the sorcerer. And it reminded me that it wasn't necessarily the witchcraft of Simon that was his condemnation, but it was his motivation. So real quick, I want to read Acts 8, 19 through 22. When Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying of on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. So quick break here. He wants to spread the Holy Spirit. He but he wants to do it for his own glory, not for the glory of the Holy Spirit. Right. So, continuing on. But Peter told him, may your silver be destroyed with you, 
because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. So the apostles don't convict him of sorcery. They convict him of covetousness. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing that we see with Agatha in WandaVision is Agatha wants the power for her own glory. And she may do good with it. She may do bad with it. In the comic books, Agatha is a, to use a Dungeons and Dragons term, true neutral character. She's not evil. She's not good, but she does evil and she does good. Right. And even in the context of the show, the good she was trying to do was to get Wanda to wake up to the reality that she was creating at the expense of the free will of the people in the town. So right. she could absorb Wanda's power, take the power of chaos away from Wanda so that Wanda would stop hurting the town. But she couldn't do that without killing Wanda, Wanda. in the process. So, yeah. <laughs> but David's comment is really good. And I think it's one that we have to come back to next year after the Doctor Strange movie comes out. Yeah. The next one comes from a line that's actually addresses the concept of disobeying the, the rules of life. And this is something Wanda has actually already done because she has created this own virtual reality of her own that she's forcing people to partake in. Mm -hmm. And she has brought vision back to life. She has rushed through a pregnancy and delivered twins. She's not following the rules of life, but when her twin boys have a dog that dies, and we actually find out Agatha killed the dog. She, you know, rushes up and the boys tell her, why can't you bring him back to life like you did dad? And she says, I'm trying to tell you that there are rules in life. We can't rush aging, which they do several times, just because it's yep. convenient. And we can't reverse death no matter how sad it makes us. Some things are forever. And I thought it was very interesting because I think this is one step towards her waking up to what she's doing. Yeah. When it's a huge step. Right. She's realizing that she is the one that's complicit in all of this. And it's because she is herself unwilling to obey the rules of life. And so she's telling herself this more than I think she's telling the kids. And <laughs> it's like, uh, by the way, there are rules in life and you're you're disobeying them. I do want to say that happens as a parent frequently where you're you're scolding your children for something and you realize halfway through the scolding – that you are just as guilty of it as they are. What do they say when you point a finger? You have four. Yeah, actually, exactly. Three fingers pointing back at you, but because your thumb goes punts forward too. But yeah. Anyway, one of the other most entertaining things about Wandavision are the commercial breaks because they are written into the show, and as you progress from like the original first two episodes where they're black and white. They actually kind of follow the trends of advertising as they go, which is, is kind of hilarious. Yeah. But they get progressively <laughs> darker as you go as well. Yeah, that, that claymation one crossed the line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually one of the last ones is the selling a drug, the prescription yeah. it was, commercial. It was in episode seven or eight. Yeah. I actually wrote it down because I think it works very well because we're talking about the rules of life. 
Ask your doctor about Nexus, a unique antidepressant that works to anchor you back to your reality or the reality of your choice. Side effects include feeling your feelings, confronting your truth, seizing your destiny, and possibly more depression. You should not take Nexus unless your doctor has cleared you to move on with your life. Nexus, because the world doesn't revolve around you. Or does it? This, of course, is critical to her character in the comic books and in the upcoming Doctor Strange movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she is, she's got the world revolving around her because she's depressed and she's created her own reality. So all of the, this entire commercial is pointed at Wanda. But Well, yeah, but Wanda's character is also a nexus where she is the same person in every reality. Ooh, that's interesting. There are not multiple Scarlet Witches. There is only one Scarlet Witch in the entire multiverse. Which is why there's two of them at the end in the in the final teaser. Yeah. And what's going to happen, that element is going to be how Doctor Strange comes to depend on her in the uh, Doctor Strange and Multiverse of Madness movie that's coming up. Huh. That's really interesting. But back to Life Has Rules. <laughs> yes. Life Has Rules. Life Has Rules. So there's this portion about what Wanda is doing where she is, you know, basically escaping the rules of life that you you have to suffer a loss and you just have to find a way to move on in your life despite the loss. And I have the problem with this because I've never really lost anybody close to me. Not yet. I know that there's coming a time where I will lose my parents or I will lose my brother. Mm -hmm. it, it comes to all of us eventually. I've lost grandparents and those hurt, but they're not like the, the close losses that, you know, that Wanda's experiencing in this. Yeah. It's one of those situations where, you know, people just say, well, you just have to get on with your life, you know, that, you know, live with the memories and all of these platitudes that you give people when they lose. And I've had so many people who have had a great loss in their life tell mm. them that those are the most cruel things that people can tell them to do because there's no moving on. You have to find a way to live with that grief every minute of every day. And you probably yeah. have a lot more understanding of that than I do. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this is something that we have to live in. Life is real and it does have rules. And in Ecclesiastes nine, it says, what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. I, I think – as much as I love Ecclesiastes, it will depress you if you're in the wrong frame of mind when you read it, because it's basically the reminder that life has rules, life is going nowhere and is rather pointless unless you're living it for God. And that's yep. that's basically the yeah, gist you, of it. You want to read it with a scholarly mindset, not a <laughs> mindset of somebody seeking inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, the Holy Spirit works in incredible ways. Yes, so. he does. If you're called to it, read it. <laughs> and then the other scripture that we have is, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23, which is a reminder that because we live in a world that is dictated by the great lawgiver, we are all transgressors. So not, yeah. it's, it's not even a matter of saying that life has rules. It's that we have all sinned against the lawgiver. And so there is even beyond just the day-to-day the -day grind of living life and having to deal with the pits and falls of living life. We have that additional yeah. burden of sin that separates us from God. And the only way 
that we can obtain eternal life is through Christ Jesus because he paid the penalty right. for our sin. So that yeah. brings us full circle back to the gospel, which is nice. <laughs> it is not possible that we could live a sinless life. You know, we don't go a split second of any day where we don't exist in a sinful state, you know, if we have not received the the propitiation of Christ. Right. If we have not been had that sin taken from us and and borne off by him. Yeah. And that doesn't take us away from the consequences of living in a fallen world, which is where, you know, you circle back to the life has rules. There's still the consequences of sin in our lives. Even once we have found saving grace through Christ, we still have to, and and we've dealt with this in previous episodes as well. We still have to live with the consequences of sin, whether it's our sin or other people's sin or just sin in general that has cursed the world we live in. We still live with the consequences of sin. And that wraps back into the concept of life has rules. That's where death comes from. That's why people Mm -hmm. die. That's why the animals we love die. That's why we have tsunamis and tornadoes and hurricanes and climate change, if you believe in it, or any of those other (laughs) issues. That's (laughs) the entire reason is because of sin. And you have to always realize that the consequences, the, the, the rules that we live in, you know, just the natural rules, the natural laws that dictate our day-to-day life, those come as a because of a perfect creation that was marred by sin. Yep. So we had one more. Yes. This one I thought was was particularly interesting to me because at the end, when all is said and done, Wanda has stolen the lives of hundreds of people for weeks, really. I mean, it, it doesn't really say. Yeah. Her time is completely different inside the hex. We have no yeah. idea how long it's been going on. But every time that one of the supporting characters is momentarily woken from the trance that Wanda has them in, usually by vision, Yeah, <laughs> it is very clear that they are terrified and in pain and at one point, you learn that they are suffering from Wanda's nightmares, mm-hmm. which, given her life thus far, is a terrifying thought. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the end, she makes the right decision and she shuts down the hex. But that's it. She then says, I'm really sorry. And flies, and flies away. away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I sort of feel like... They justify this behavior when Monica sympathizes with Wanda and she says they'll never know what you sacrificed for them. Referring, of course, to the fact that Wanda gave up her family, the family that she had created, Mm -hmm. granted, in her moment of grief. But it was still a family that didn't really exist. Mm hmm. They were completely dependent on the hex. So for her to disband the hex, she had to lose them. So that got me thinking about, you know, Wanda has done some very, very real damage here. Yeah. Because it's only the adults who, you know, provide feedback throughout the episodes of the impact of Wanda's hex on them outside of, you know, the, when, when they're woken up. But you have children who are 
asleep in beds. I think one of the characters theorized that they're kept essentially offline until they were needed for the Halloween episode, right? Right. So imagine the damage that she's done to these children who were in bed for days and days and days at a time, suffering through Wanda's nightmares of her parents getting blown up and her brother getting riddled by machine gun. And Vision's head getting ripped open by... Yeah. Yeah. And, and... Her killing Vision herself. Yeah. Which, I mean, <laughs> did you ever watch MASH? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the, the final episode of MASH or the final two-parter episode of MASH where Hawkeye is in an insane asylum because the woman on the bus had killed her baby in order to save the people on the bus? Mm-hmm. Smothered him. Yeah. Yeah. So it drove Hawkeye insane. Imagine what it did to the woman. And that's what Wanda must have been feeling over the fact that she willingly chose to destroy Vision's Infinity Stone rather than allow Thanos to take it. Vision pleaded with her to do it. So it it was – Yeah. Yeah. But here we have children of all ages who are laying in bed suffering nightmares that carried that level of grief on them. One of the characters when he was woken up made the comment about – can you contact my sister to care for my ailing mother or something like that who's dying? You know, she was literally yeah, exactly. preventing some of these characters from doing the the actual day-to-day tasks to care for other people that needed their care, that needed them. And they were being pulled into her world instead of doing the things that, you know, were needed for other people. So – it was very traumatic for everybody involved and it yeah. was a, it was a terrible thing that she did and and you're right it doesn't seem like enough you know that she just like i'm so sorry for all the pain i caused i'm just going to no restitution yeah. no making it right just leaving and you know it occurs to me that this may because this is a, the very last scene of the of the last episode and it may have suffered from the impact of covid yeah but that got me thinking about restitution in the Bible, which led me to to Exodus 22. And and really, you know, (laughs) that entire group of books, the the books of the law, all go into this in great detail. Mm -hmm. But Exodus 22 verses 1 through 4 are the ones that I pulled out in particular. When a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it or sells it, he must repay five cattle For the ox or four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught in the act of breaking in and he is beaten to death, no one is guilty of bloodshed. But if this happens after sunrise, the householder is guilty of bloodshed. A thief must make full restitution. If he's unable, he is to be sold because of his death, sold into slavery. If what was stolen, whether an ox, a donkey, or sheep, is actually found alive in his possession, he must repay double. So... There was no get-out-of-jail-free card for doing evil Mm -hmm. in the Old Testament, not even among the Jews, you know, one Jew-on-Jew crime. You were expected to pay restitution. But then in Matthew, verse 5, 38 through 42, Christ says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, 
Go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So what Christ does is he doesn't overwrite the the rules of restitution from Old Testament law. He changes the perspective and says, in the Old Testament, it is the evildoer, the criminal, who bears the responsibility for restitution. But it is the love of the person who has been wronged that can forgive, and that forgiveness is so integral to the gospel that I think that was what they lost here. I would have liked to have seen the villagers, even just one or two of them, come to demonstrate an understanding of what Wanda has been through. They've been intimate with it for so long. They should know the horror that made her what she is. They could have demonstrated some level of forgiveness. And I think that would have been so much more powerful. And if that was lost due to the COVID, I wish they had worked it in somehow Yeah, to the writing. Yeah. The original WandaVision run was supposed to be 10 episodes and then COVID hit and travel restrictions and everything that came with COVID had an impact on what they could and could not film. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't complete enough of the story to get the 10th episode. So they actually brought it down to nine and they had to sacrifice in order to fit. Into there, yeah, there's some story missing because of that. And that's what when we discussed earlier that there was this documentary on Disney mm-hmm. Plus about the making of that was one of the things they dealt with was the things that were left out. So yeah, there's some story that didn't get wrapped up. There's some plot holes that were created because of that. Some characters that just seemed to drop off and disappear. And some of it they dealt with, you know, by just having a line in there saying, well, she's doing this, you know, so that, you know, to make up for the fact that Darcy disappeared and didn't come back in the last episode. Yeah. So there's some of that that could explain why we don't see. But I could also say that it may have been just too soon. I mean, they'd just been released from days of agony. I mean, to turn around and go, I I get why you did that. You know, I forgive you. I think that would have been asking a little bit too much of the town. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's no doubt. And they may come back to it because the Disney Plus series are Mm -hmm. canon. So maybe we'll see it later on. Well, it's amazing how many characters come back because like in the Civil War, the villain who creates the division between Stark and – Zemo. Yeah, Zemo. He is a child of the destruction that happened in Sokovia. So mm-hmm. he came out of Zokovia and became a villain because of just the fact that his family got killed because of that whole destruction. So maybe a villain will come out of this town. Yeah. That became, you know, enraged because of what happened to them out of the pain and grief of that Wanda experienced. So yeah, there, there could be some canon that comes out of this, you know, some existing storyline that, that resurrects itself. <laughs> but it, it is interesting that. You know, Wanda says she's sorry and she leaves, but the next time we see her, which is at the end of the credits, if you didn't watch all the way to the end of the credits. Post-credit scene. Post-credit scene. You see her sitting alone by herself on the porch of a cabin in the middle of the mountains. And I think in a way, it may not have been restitution, but I think in a way she was punishing herself. So I think- Just like like Thanos was doing. Right. Right. 
It wasn't that she was seeking peace. I think that she was taking her grief away from everybody else to, for their protection and for her to learn how to deal with her power and her grief and self-exile made sense in her situation. And I don't think that she was seeking peace there. I think she was exiling herself. So give, give yeah. you what that is. I don't know whether that really counts as restitution, but I think that she was. It's, yeah, I, I, I don't think it does because it doesn't impact the, the people, people that, that she hurt. Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Saying you're sorry, even feeling you're sorry, no matter how badly you feel about it. Right. Is not enough. Right. So, you know, truly loving your neighbor is sticking around and, and you know, trying to set right what you've done. And, and this of the entire series, this one element of her just taking off after the incredible trauma she's caused bugs me the most. Well, she kind of had to because if she hadn't, she would have been taken into custody by the government. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was leave or be arrested. So either way, she probably wouldn't have been able to stick around and, and make things right. So. Oh, but sh but she deserved to be arrested. Yeah, she did. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know that they had a cell that would have held her. So <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> the raft, right, was where the um, the folks were imprisoned after uh, and that, or during Civil War. Yeah. And Captain America broke them all out at the end. So Yeah. So going on, I don't know what we're going to be doing next after this. Uh, I've let go of Disney, so hopefully it's not something Disney <laughs> will find <laughs> something in the theater. I, I will say I went to see The Courier just a week or so ago mm. before Easter, and it was actually a really good movie. It is a historical movie. It's based on real events. I don't know how accurate it is, but it was another role to see Benedict Cumberbatch in where he plays something totally different from the superhero that we're used to seeing him as <laughs> either as Sherlock or anything else he's done. But he, he plays just a, a normal British businessman who is used by the British intelligence and the CIA to become a courier of information from a mole within the Soviet Union, a high ranking official who is not necessarily defecting, but wanting to prevent war. And it's a really good movie. I don't know whether we'll have the opportunity to review it at some point, but it didn't have a good ending. So if you're wanting to go and see a good ending, don't go see this movie because <laughs> not a feel good. It's movie, not yeah. a feel good movie. No, but they did have pictures of the actual gentleman uh, at in the credits, which I thought was really cool. Right before they went into credits, they showed a, a brief interview with the actual gentleman who is. The, the the courier in the movie, so that was kind of a cool tie into history. So you got to see the the real person when it hits DVD or streaming services, whatever we want to call that yeah. these days. <laughs> I will be checking it out because I, you know, I'm a fan of uh, the historical films too. Yeah, so maybe we can do a DVD episode on it. Yeah, it's it was a good movie, and I do recommend it. I don't know whether it will still be in theaters, but when we get this episode posted, but it is worth seeing. So we do take suggestions. If you want to go onto our group on Facebook, you can get there by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community or looking for Are You Just Watching on Facebook. It's really easy to join the group. Just answer three questions and you're automatically in. And you can let us know if there's something particular you'd like us to review, old or new. It doesn't have to be a new release. Uh, we tend to, to hit towards newer content simply 
because we don't know what of the older content people have seen, and we want people to have、mm-hmm. seen what we review. So that's kind of the idea: is you know that we're not spoiling something that you've seen it and understand、right. what we're talking about. We'd love to have your feedback on this episode. You can do that at the group as well, or you can go to our show notes, which are at areyoujustwatching.com/slash one fifteen. And you can call us at five one three eight one eight two nine five nine to leave a voicemail, or you can email feedback at areyoujustwatching dot com. And we do want you to subscribe to our podcast so that you get our episodes when they release. We are not as consistent as we'd、yeah. like to be about when we release them. We do one episode a month, and if you're subscribed, then you just automatically get it in your feed, and that would be the absolute best way to keep up with us.、Yeah. We do post them on Facebook, and if you are seeing our posts on Facebook, really would appreciate it if you would share our content to your friends and family. Put it out on your feeds, tweet it, put it on Instagram, any of the other social medias. Let get the word out about that we are. If you have anybody that you know that you think would benefit from listening to one of our episodes, please give them the gift of an episode by sharing <laughs> sharing our episode. That really just helps broaden our audience, and we appreciate that so much. We want to thank our our current patrons: Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman. They have been giving to us monthly, and we love it. If you would give to us monthly as well, you can do so by going to Patreon.com/slash. Are you just watching and committing to a small monthly gift? It does not have to be large. We appreciate everything that you give. That helps us. Pay for our website and other costs that are we incur with doing our podcast. We do not make money doing this at all, at least not so far. We haven't made any money, <laughs> <laughs> and that keeps us from having to do advertising. I believe that's it. Keep up with us on social medias and、uh, let us know what you'd like us to review next. And we will post in our group when we have decided what we are. Going to record on next. We will post a heads up about it and give you an opportunity to chime in. So that,、yeah. that has become we, our practice. We love that kind of、uh, advanced <laughs> feedback. Yes, I believe that's it. We thank you so much for listening. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.